This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 14, The Frankfurt School. So I'm going to try not to go too fast. If I'm going too fast, just look confused and I will slow down. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk to you today about a group of thinkers, you know, and they're all very colorful personalities. So I, 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 want, to try, I want to try to give you a sense of, of a handful of about half a dozen of them, each of, each of whom could be you know, his own course. Um, it's also the, what I'm going to talk to you about today in the Frankfurt School is going to involve a kind of philosophical school that will basically merge and synthesize all of the big currents we've been talking about. Phenomenology will come back, existentialism will come back, Hegel will come back, psychoanalysis will come back, and we're going to kind of smush them all together, um, which, is, which is going to be a little, a little trippy. Well, uh, this is not working. Um, okay, sorry, can you hear me now? I was getting a lot of echo here. Um, I'm still getting some echo, but... Move that down. Okay. Um, so last time I began with one of my favorite children's books, but not the hippopotamus. Um, and what are you supposed to remember from the hippopotamus book is that the important thing is that the hippopotamus has to make the decision all by herself. And existentialism, especially in the version that, as Sartre formulates it, um, and as the French existentialists more general formulate it, is a philosophy of decisionism, where all of the moral, existential, in some sense ontological weight is put on that moment of choice. What it means to be, to self-create, to not only be but also exist, is to make a decision. So Sartre, in that essay I gave you, is talking about existentialism as a philosophy of moral encouragement, a humanist philosophy, an optimistic philosophy, um, because it gives us so much freedom and potential. But it's also, as you see, a philosophy of anguish. And when he talks about anguish, it's different from Hegel's angst. I know once you get into kind of anguish, angst, anxiety, it all gets kind of blended together. Um, you know, it's, uh, sorry, it's different from Heidegger's angst. Heidegger's angst is, very is kind of very specifically connected to this confrontation with human finitude, with one's own, own mortality. When Sartre talks about anguish, he is talking about the unbearable burden of decision-making. The fact that we are thrown into the world and then abandoned here. We're abandoned by the God who does not exist. So everyone's dealing with this absence of God in a different way. I mean, Sartre really kind of mourns, you know, God the lost father and, you know, God who abandoned him and God who ran off and died or got killed. Um, so this responsibility that you have in the face of God's death. Now, one of the decisions that Sartre will struggle with for a very long time um, is how to relate to the Soviet project, whether or not to join the Communist Party. Um, he has novels about this as well, so does Simone de Beauvoir. This decision of whether or not you join the Communist Party will come up. There, it will come up in today's lecture too. Do you join the party do, or do you... Do you put your hopes in the Soviet experiment in the communist revolution without joining the party? There's a special term for that. It's called fellow traveler. Um, in Russian, it's popuchik. To be a fellow traveler is a very specific term. It doesn't sound specific, but it, but it is. To be a fellow traveler is a communist sympathizer who does not join the communist party. And remember, once we have Leninism, to join the communist party, it's not just like you register as a Democrat so you can vote in the primaries. No, it's like, it's a very big deal. You are like devoting your life, you know, to being an underground revolutionary, to, you know, to discipline, to conspiracy, to giving your life for the workers' revolution. So it's not a kind of decision you make lightly. But if you're a sympathizer who chooses not to join the party, not to be a professional revolutionary, it could be a fellow traveler. Um, now there's a lot about you know, the ethics of existentialism that will dwell on the tragedy of choice. 
the tragedy of choice and, and the anguish of choice. And this is also going to be the background for these Frankfurt School thinkers. Um, Satra gives that example in the essay you read, you know, do you abandon your sick mother and join the French resistance? Um, if you are in a place that is occupied by the Nazis, do you take in your Jewish neighbor who is in hiding, knowing that that puts your own children at risk because if you're caught, your whole family will be killed? Um, do you, the example I gave you from Michal Glowinski's memoirs, The Black Seasons, if you are in hiding from the Nazis in a cellar and the baby is screaming, do you suffocate the baby because otherwise everybody will be caught? These moments of impossible choice, these are the moments that highlight, that kind of illuminate that, like, that essence of existentialism, the anguish of choice, the tragedy of choice. There was a, a very good op-ed in the New York Times this past weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I don't remember which day, um, by someone named Gershon Baskin, who I don't know personally, but who's a peace activist and a hostage negotiator, a longtime hostage negotiator in the Middle East. And he talks about the moral dilemmas of negotiating hostage exchanges in a very self-reflective way. You know, not in a defensive way and not in an apologetic way, but that these are the impossible choices you face. You know, when anything you choose is going to cause suffering to innocent people. You know, the moments when there are no innocent choices, this is the existentialist moment, nevertheless you have to choose. Um, that, that was very dark, so let me say something just slightly lighter before I get into the, the Frankfurt School. There's a phrase that's used now often, a decision fatigue that the, the exhaustion of making choices all the time, you know, and it's also seen as one of the reasons why people are drawn to populism, why they are drawn to fascism, because you get some, you get some big leader with a booming voice who will make all the decisions for you. Um, and this decision fatigue, which often then is talked about also at the level of all sorts of minor decisions, can also be understood in the context of the moral burden of constant decision making. And I have, a, I have a little recommendation for everybody on the side, which I may have mentioned in a previous lecture, but if not, I will, I will mention it once more again, because I feel this constantly. You're constantly making decisions. You know, you're constantly you know, just triaging messages and triaging requests and deciding whether to speak or whether not to speak and weighing every word and you're responsible for every word. This is why I go to group fitness classes. <laughs> This is why I took up indoor cycling. Like, I could ride an indoor bicycle by my, I could ride a stationary bicycle by myself for an hour, right? I could, like, make up my own intervals. I'd be perfectly capable of it. But what is so calming about going to an indoor cycling class is that the instructor shouts at you for an hour and makes all the decisions. A little shout out here to Mario and Beckett, my favorite spin instructors. They're, they're, they're awesome, you know? you know? And there's a whole hour where I don't have to make any choices, any decisions. Now, now of course, it's, it's a circumscribed situation, right? It's like, it's a safe space, basically. Like, there aren't many decisions you can make while well, on a stationary bicycle. You can stand up, you can sit down, you can turn the resistance to the right, you can turn the resistance to the left, you can change the handlebar position. I mean, there aren't that many things you can do, but even with that limited range, I find it such a wonderful mental break not to have to make those decisions. It's like a whole hour, somebody else makes all the choices, and I totally just zone out and follow the instructions. And then I have some energy back to return to making decisions. So I've, I've thought about trying to formulate this as a recommendation, like perhaps it could be a kind of a partial kind of inoculation or immunization for people who are drawn to fascist movements. Maybe you just need a little break from decision-making, and you could take that break in the context of, for instance, an indoor cycling class, you know, and nobody needs to get shot, nobody needs to get detained, I mean, you can burn hundreds of calories, like, I totally recommend it. Um, Okay, um, that, that was your little lighter break um, before we, we go into some somewhat more darker material again, and we're gonna go back into totalitarianism. I'm gonna keep mentioning kind of as we scroll through some of these critical historical benchmarks that are the context for these thinkers coming on the stage. I'm gonna talk to you about a group today called the Frankfurt School that is going to get started in 1923. So we're right on, again, we're kind of right after the creation of the Soviet Union as the, the Bolsheviks um, have consolidated their victory in the Civil War. 
Um, again, remember, we're right in the aftermath of that First World War, which from the point of view of Europe is the first total war. It's a war of attrition. The losses are on a scale that nobody had seen before that time. Now we look at them like, oh, that was trivial compared to what's going to come in the Second World War. But it was not at the time. It was losses that were unimaginable. You have some 661,000 dead, 700,000 wounded, another 700,000 in captivity. If you include the Balkan Wars, Serbia alone lost one quarter of its population, there's enormous material damage, the factory city of Wuj, all the factories are, are blown up, there's total unemployment in a lot of these places. So it's just a scale of devastation that encompasses not just armies, but massively civilians um, that hadn't been experienced before. Germany loses. Um, Germany loses and the Allies are going to get together at Versailles in France. Um, there's going to be a peace treaty. The whole map of Europe is going to be redrawn in accordance with Woodrow Wilson's principle of self-determination, meaning that nation and state borders should coincide. Not, you know, each nation should get their own state. One of many ideas that only works in theory and not in practice. Many ideas are great in theory, and they turn out not to be so good in practice. This was, this was one of them. Um, but it, in any case, the other thing about the 1919 Treaty of Versailles that's important for today's lecture is not only that we're redrawing the map of Europe, but that all the blame gets placed on Germany. Um, and I, I will just leave aside the question of how just or unjust it was or the mess by which all of these countries jump into what becomes the First World War in 1914. And let me just take you into 1919 and try to give you a sense of what that meant for a new Germany that was being reborn, now no longer the German Empire, no longer the Prussian Empire, but a new state of Germany. Um, Germany is restricted in all sorts of ways. They're not allowed to have compulsory military service. They're very limited in what kinds of defense and military maneuvers they can do in general. Um, they pledge to restrict the independence of Austria and these other, these other countries. Um, but most importantly for these purposes are that they are made to pay massive um, reparation, compensation payments that are going to throw the country into a huge economic crisis. Um, and they are going, so that, so economically, they are forced to take on the guilt of the war and pay reparations. But also, psychologically, the treaty puts all the blame for the war on Germany in something that is called the war guilt clause. And I'll, I'll just you know, read you a couple phrases from it. The Allied and Associated Governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage. She will make compensation for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allied and Associated Powers and to their property. Um, so Germany like affirms and Germany accepts the responsibility. So this enormous bloodbath you know, Europe has gone up in flames, and this country is then, is then saying it's all your fault. So this is kind of the psychological, like, the psychological point of departure for the philosophers who are now going to kind of come of age in, in Weimar Germany. Um, and remember that Lenin makes this international, this waiver on in, wager on international revolution. He thinks any day now, workers all around the world are going to rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. That doesn't happen, but it almost happens, and he's particularly looking to Germany, and it doesn't happen in Germany, but it almost happens in Germany. Um, you know, Rosa Luxemburg is, is murdered, Karl Liebknecht is murdered. Um, it turns out that the it turns out that the other side kind of gets the leaders of what would have been the communist revolution and kills them, but it might have gone the other way. These are very contingent moments. Okay. Um, what then comes into being in 1919 instead of a communist Germany or Bolshevik Germany is Weimar Germany. Um, and a Weimar Germany, the Weimar Republic, is named after the city of Weimar, where the German Assembly meets to convene a new constitution to replace the defeated monarchy. Um, 
It is, it's a fascinating, it's a place that the Weimar Republic lasts from 1919 to 1933. That's not very long in historical terms. It is culturally dazzling. There's a reason why graduate students for so long have been fascinated by, obsessed with studying intellectual life, artistic life, literature from Weimar Germany. It's a cultural, like, it, it's an extraordinary cultural moment um, in all the different arts you know, and in thought, and it's a political disaster. Um, and so there's been a lot of obsessing about it. Um, threats to democracy were coming from the very beginning, from the right and from the left. You know, it experiences in extreme what everybody in Europe is experiencing, which is that radically polarizing political spectrum, the light left becoming more radical, the right becoming more radical, the center disappearing, um, the search for scapegoats, radical economic instability. Um, and this is the context for Hitler's appearing on the scene. Um, and it's the context for the rise of Nazism that we get through the 1920s. Um, and Hitler was an aspiring artist who, as I'm sure you've all heard, um, gets rejected from the art academy he applies to in Vienna. Um, I remember listening to a lecture by the great historian of Germany, James Sheehan, when I was in graduate school, and he called that, that Hitler's rejection by the art academy in Vienna, the single worst admissions decision ever made in the history of higher education. Um, and um, and I, I think he's right about that. It's another one of those moments of contingency, like Lenin doesn't get to Petrograd in April 1917. I think we don't have the Bolshevik Revolution. Hitler gets accepted at that art academy. Like, we might not have had Nazism coming to power. Um, it's these little things um, that, that history turns on. Um, Okay, um, Hitler is going to come to power. The Nazis are going to come to power in 1933. They will come to power, by the way, in a democratic election, um, which was a lesson for everybody that there's nothing about democracy that automatically protects you from fascism because people can democratically vote, you know, to elect to elect fascists. Um, by the time Hitler comes to power in 1933, the space for standing aside, for being politically unengaged, for not taking a position has effectively disappeared. And there's a sense that there is no space to do art, to do literature, to do philosophy, to just live your life without taking a political position because the stakes are so overwhelming that that neutral space that people had so long had to live their lives and say, I'm not interested in politics, I'd rather not be involved with politics, that space disappears. Um, so as we move then through the 1930s, this necessity of commitment, the obsession of commitment, the idea of being engagé, of being engaged, the English engaged doesn't quite get it, but of being involved, you know, of, of committing is everywhere and it saturates all of philosophy. Um, there's the, the means and the ends problem. Lenin has a famous dictum, which is that you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Um, and as um, my friend and colleague Vladimir Dismaniano has said, like in the 20th century saw mountains and mountains of eggshells and nobody ever tasted an omelet. Um, so as we move into the 1930s, we have Nazis, Nazism come to power in Germany and we have Stalinism come to power in, in the Soviet Union. And we have a level of terror that was in some way sui generis. You have a kind of reign of terror that peaks in Moscow in the 1930s where people just wait to be awakened by a knock at the door in the middle of the night and people are just taken away and accused of being enemies of the people and accused of being spies, you know, and thrown in dungeons or sent to camps and tortured into making false confessions and shot in the back of the head. I mean, just have this reign of terror that comes from everywhere. And you also have show trials. You have people put on trial to give elaborate, self-flagellating, self-deprecating confessions, confessing to crimes that are fabricated and they've been tortured into these elaborately performative false confessions. So you, you have, we're moving into Europe as a bloodbath. Europe as a, as a place of terror, and Europe as a place of bloodletting, and Europe as a place of massive death and massive suffering. Um, okay, 
Sorry, this is the not very cheerful context. This is why I, I gave you the little, you know, the little note about the spinning classes. <laughs> I realize that doesn't quite offset Nazism and Stalinist terror, but we do what we can. Um, okay, so what is the Frankfurt School? The Frankfurt School is a kind of think tank kind of place. You know, um, it's, it's officially called the Institute for Social Research, based at the University of Frankfurt. Um, in which thinkers come together, you know, originally in 1923, and they're going to formulate something called critical theory. Um, and these are philosophers who are also coming from literary theory. Some of them are coming from musicology. Some of them are coming from social science. And one of the things that makes them complicated is not just that they're going to draw on basically all the big philosophical currents we've already covered, um, but they're also going to draw on different disciplines. So you'll see when you read them, one of the reasons, and you've, I've given you some little fragments, and one of the reasons why they're difficult to read is because they're pulling in references from all over the place. They're pulling in references from opera, they're pulling in references from literature in different languages, they're putting in literature references from psychology, from, you know, what, like, it's kind of, everything's kind of smushed together. Um, and what I'm always hopeful for, and the most important text we're going to talk about, which I won't get to till the end, is, is Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is a very difficult text to read, and it's one of the most important texts we go through, is that it will be less mystifying when you see where things come from. You know, there's a lot of like, some, like imagine, imagine some very smart, impressionable people, you know, who've read a lot of Freud and a lot of Husserl and a lot of Hegel and a lot of Marx, you know, and a lot of Heidegger, you know, a lot, it's all kind of like, and it's all kind of in their head moving around together. You know, and it, so it's that, there's a kind of eclecticism to it, very self-consciously, you know, and you're going to see in the original formulation of the task of the Institute, um, which Max Horkheimer writes, a, a self-consciousness about we need all of this stuff. We need all of this stuff and we need to combine a lot of different things. Um, one of the things we need to combine is empirical research with theory. So imagine that you're taking both philosophy and the, it's a little bit like, you know, when Marx decides to turn Hegel on his head, so you're gonna take everything in the realm of the ideal and the kind of metaphysical and the abstract and make it very concrete. Well, they're going to take things like social science, social psychology, sociology, things that involve the collection of empirical data, you know, of statistics, and they're gonna combine that with very abstract philosophy. They're gonna combine that with ideas. They're gonna kind of pull in everything from, from everywhere. That, that's what makes it kind of difficult to follow sometimes. But don't be intimidated. It's just a kind of eclecticism. It's just like, we're gonna take whatever we need from wherever we can find it because this is a terrifying world we're in and we've gotta somehow try to figure out what's going on using all possible means of knowledge at our disposal. So there's this self-consciously interdisciplinary. Now you also see in Horkheimer's um, the task of the institutes is kind of programmatic statements. A lot of these guys like programmatic statements, you know, that he is saying that, you know, we're, we're going to work in the realm of the ideal and the realm of the material. We're taking a lot from Hegel. We're taking a lot from dialectics. You can't break from Hegel, he says, because the price of abandoning Hegel is facing the meaningless of our existence, what he calls the medley of arbitrariness of facing nothingness and death. We can't get rid of Hegel. But they're also going to be very skeptical about telos. Um, so what, what Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno, who I'll talk about in a moment, are going to spend a lot of time using Hegel, but putting aside the idea that there's an end of history. So there's skepticism about this idea that things are necessarily going to this point of, re of resolution, but you maintain the idea of dialectics. You maintain the idea that things are containing within themselves the seeds of their own undermining, that there are tensions and contradictions and antitheses that is what is propelling history forward, but not necessarily in a certain direction. Um, they're also going to take a lot from Heidegger. One of what the things they take from Heidegger is this idea of zorga, of, of care, you know, and when 
when Heidegger here talks about care, it's not just like, and it's not primarily like, oh, you care for your child or like you make sure you pack a cookie in their lunch. Um, my daughter's favorite example because what she really cares about is cookies. Um, but you the fact that we are always already in the world means we cannot be in a position of neutrality towards the world. And this is what they're taking from Heidegger. The fact that like being in the world matters to me. I can't take you know, an abstract, neutral, scientifically detached position about this world because we're always already in the world. And therefore, every, every, what it means to be in the world is of concern to us. So this idea that care is kind of like concern, that our social context is our ultimate context for intelligibility. We are beings who care about the world. We're occupied in, with things in the world, with other beings in the world. We're involved in the world. We're doing stuff in the world. We cannot be indifferent towards that world. Um, so also this need to bring in as well the, the individual existence into meaningful total totalities, into context. You can't understand the individual outside of context because we're always already in a social context. We're always already in a time and in a place. Okay, so that's, that's the general point of departure that Horkheimer formulates. Um, okay, now, now these are all very different, very colorful characters and I'll, I'll go through them fairly briefly and then I wanna, I wanna dwell a little bit at the end on dialectic of enlightenment. Um, Walter Benjamin who is a, a wonderful, wonderful writer, um, who was uh, in some ways, in, in some ways a, a kind of the most delicate or fragile sensibility of them, who was sort of torn between, he had a very intense friendship with Gershom Shalom, who was a German, Jew, a, a German Jewish thinker who becomes very interested also in Jewish philosophy. Now I should say all of these guys are Germans of Jewish origin. They will all insist that their Jewishness has nothing to do with anything and is completely irrelevant, with the somewhat exception of Benjamin, who's kind of also drawn to maybe he should be delving into with Shalom Jewish philosophy. Now, on the other hand, he falls in love with this Latvian woman named Asya, who is a Bolshevik, and follows her to Moscow. Um, he follows her to Moscow, but there's this other guy who's also followed her to Moscow. Um, and you know, Benjamin doesn't speak Russian, and he's not sure whether or not he should join the party. So we're going back to this, to join the party or not to join the party. Should he become like a Jewish philosopher? Should he become a communist? You know, does he have any chance of marrying Asya? Is she gonna marry this other guy? I mean, he actually like follows her to Moscow and then ends up spending a lot of time hanging out with the other guy because like she's busy <laughs> doing stuff and it's a kind of strange like menage a trois-like situation. Um, this is all described in Benjamin's Moscow Diary, um, which, which, which I recommend. I mean, you'll, like, you have a lot of empathy for Benjamin after reading the Moscow Diary. But he's also kind of checking out this experience of what is Soviet Russia. Um, and he's there in the winter of 1926 to 1927. So it's this moment after Lenin's death, but before Stalin has consolidated power. Um, he, um, he goes on lots of sleigh rides. Um, it's, um, it's also, it's really a diary about a commitment problem, you know, and in that sense, it's very much a kind of existentialist illustration that he's torn between Gershom Shalom's influence and Asya's influence, between Jewish mysticism and Soviet communism. And he, he ends up coming up with a lot of very interesting observations then as he watches fascism come to power in, in Germany and as he, like, as he watches the beginnings of what's going to become Stalinism in the Soviet Union and he says, oh, I see, like where, where communism you know, politicizes aesthetics, fascism aestheticizes politics. Like, and, he, um, and he has a lot of interesting insights that way. I should also mention a, maybe a, a lighter note. So back, Oh, more than 20 years ago when I was doing a postdoc at Columbia um, in the miserable aftermath of September 11th, a friend calls me up one night and she's like, you will never, you'll never guess what's going on on the Lower East Side. I said, what's going on? She's like, there's an acapella group 
There's an acapella group from Berkeley who has written a cycle of songs about Walter Benjamin being torn between his love for Asya and desire to commit to the Bolshevik Revolution on the one hand and his being drawn to Jewish philosophy and re-identifying with his Jewish roots on the other hand. We have to go. Um, so I'm thinking, like, who would possibly, like, go to such a concert? Um, but, of course, like, we run down to this concert. There's the a cappella group from Berkeley who's read a lot of Walter Benjamin and has written this whole song cycle. Um, and I, I hope I won't embarrass him too much if I say it. We get there, and I, we immediately run into Sam Moyne. Um, who some of you may have taken his classes. He's now my colleague here. <laughs> he was at Columbia at the time, too. Um, and yeah, he was the first person I saw at that concert who had also come, of course, to hear the cycle of songs about Walter Benjamin's commitment problem. Um, okay. Um, acapella. <laughs> acapella group on the Lower East Side. Um, all right, yeah, things are going to turn out very badly for poor Walter Benjamin. Um, Theodore Adorno, um, I just want to give you a very brief background on him. I'll get, him ba get back to him soon. Um, he comes from music. He comes from the world of music. He's a composer, a musicologist, in addition to a philosopher and a social theorist. He comes from a very bourgeois family, steeped in high culture. He studies music composition in Vienna. He's part of a circle of composers. He writes his dissertation on Husserl's phenomenology. Um, all of these people are coming from very elite bourgeois culture, like very high German culture, you know, and they're all going, they're all in their own way unrepentant Marxists who are going to try to identify with the workers, but you'll see actually have very little contact with any actual workers. Um, Wilhelm Reich, who is the nuttiest of the group, um, an unambiguous radical, a kind of sexual revolutionary who is obsessed with the need to free ourselves from bourgeois sexual morality. Um, he insists that both, both Reich and Herbert Marcuse are going to be most pointedly, they're going to kind of smush together Marx and Freud. Um, and Reich is going to make this argument that there can be no sexual liberation under capitalism. And the problem is that the Bolsheviks have not sufficiently focused on sexual issues. There needs to be a revolution to recover the sexual rights of children. All neuroses actually like originate in this problem of, of, of sexual repression. There's, it's a kind of, it's like Freud, but on steroids. Um, and in fact, he actually then discover, that claims to discover something called orgone energy, which is some kind of like libidinal life energy, which he thinks can actually be somehow, he takes Freud's idea of a closed energy system very literally, that he has this idea that the orgone energy can somehow be like kind of collected and stored in a box. And he's going to call that an orgone energy accumulator. Um, <laughs> And um, there's a Wilhelm Reich Museum in Maine, um, which I've never been to, but you can go visit and learn about the uh, Oregon Energy Accumulator. This is also going to end very badly for Wilhelm Reich. Um, the other one, who is also um, slightly less less crazy, but also working with a lot of these same ideas, the relationship between capitalism and sexual repression, you know, and how these things are kind of going together, not just to produce neuroses, but to produce oppression. Um, so there's Marcuse, who studies with Heidegger, um, and that's going to be very important to, later on, who insists, um, who's a Hegelian as well, who feels like Marxism can only be grasped through its Hegelian roots, and is going to then spend a lot of time, eventually in American immigration, thinking about Freud, um, and coming up with a book that will generate a cult following called Eros and Civilization, which is basically Marx and Freud smushed together. Um, but it's fun to read. Um, okay, together, these very divergent, colorful characters um, have their, their school of thought is going to be called critical theory, which again, like, seems like a very general, generic term. But when you see it, capital C, capital T, critical theory, you know, that tends to refer to this particular version, uh, this particular philosophical movement, if you call it, spawned by this, this Frankfurt School, these thinkers at the University of Frankfurt. Um, what is critical theory? Well, I, the, the context is a whole lot of cultural elitism. 
you know, a kind of, in some ways, a kind of worship of German high culture. Um, a blending of philosophy and the empirical sciences, empirical research and speculation, um, a lot of integration of a Freudian psychoanalytic self with a phenomenological self with an existentialist self, which seems to take us through all possible possibilities, um, but they, they manage this. It's more negative than positive, in the not in the sense of being pessimistic, but in the sense of being better at taking things apart than in putting them together. You know, it's critical, I mean, one of the reasons critical theory makes sense to call it critical theory is that it's good at critiquing, but doesn't actually give you, it doesn't actually give you another worldview of where you're going. Um, it's opposed to any kind of theory that promises you reconciliation of subject and object or identity of subject and object. It's opposed to closed systems. It's opposed to a divorce between idealism and materialism, between empiricism and theory. Um, it rejects claims to absolute truth and refuses to actually articulate a vision of the socialist utopia, even though it's clear we're kind of always trying to move in this socialist-like direction. Hegelian dialectics are everywhere. The way they think, I mean, these, guy, these guys really have absorbed a lot of Hegel. They see the world in dialectical terms. Um, they also see the world in Heideggerian terms in that sense of Dasein is always already in the world. There's no position of neutrality. Therefore, we're always involved and we're always inside. And there's a little bit of a kind of quantum physics Heisenbergian element that to observe is already to kind of interfere. There's no way to kind of take yourself out of, of your own research. You're always implicated. Um, they're also interested in this integration of theory and praxis, um, praxis with the X, um, which is a kind of fancy Greek word for practice in the sense of action, in the sense of doing something, but tends to be a little bit more than the English practice or action. There's a little more like theoretical oomph to it. It's, it's kind of, praxis is, has a feeling that you are acting in such a way that is inspired by and self-actualizing and carrying out some kind of theory or some kind of philosophy. So the relationship between theory and praxis means you have to not just talk, you have to also do. Um, it's also normative in that they're interested not only in being descriptive, but also in being prescriptive in telling you not only how things are, but also how they should be. Okay, these guys are all, like, they're assimilated bourgeois German Jews on the left. They are all deeply tied to German culture. They've all soaked up a whole lot of Marxism. Um, Marjorie Perloff talks about Benjamin as someone who knew Goethe's work inside out the way a devout Christian might know the Bible. They all adamantly, with the partial exception of Benjamin, deny the relevance of Jewishness to their thought, and they're all going to be forced to flee Nazi Germany, which will be life-crushing for them in a way that they had never, they are the German cultural elite. They are, they, you know, they have, they are drunk on German high culture. So for them to then be thrown out as not being, to the have to flee as not being really German, is a certain kind of identity conflict for them in, in another way, because they were not identifying as Jews. It was German culture that was their culture that they had taken up. Um, okay. Um, they're, they're going to make it to the States with the exception of Benjamin, um, who flees first to Paris, and then when Paris falls to the Nazis um, in September 1940, he is trying also to get to the States. He has a transit visa through Spain that will allow him to take a ship from Portugal to the United States. Um, and he has an American visa. And he's trying to get to Lisbon. Um, he arrives at the Spanish border town on September 26, 1940, and just that day, the Spanish-French border is closed. Um, and he kills himself that night. So Benjamin never makes it. Um, Benjamin dies on September 26, 1940. 
Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, and Reich all make it to the US via various routes. Um, and it's in the United States while in exile that they learn of the Holocaust. And this to them is, it's an existential shock in a different way because they are so intensely identified with, with German culture and because they are so far away. And they will spend the rest of their lives trying to grapple with the meaning of that. Um, the, what, what I gave you from Marcuse, um, from Eros and Civilization, is that, that kind of elaboration of which you see Eros and Civilization, it's kind of a takeoff on Freud's um, civilization and its discontents. But whereas for Freud, the repression inherent in civilization is a necessity, there's no way out, that is the condition for our living together, Marcuse does see a way out. Um, and it has to do with the fact that he blames capitalism, again, for sexual repression, um, and has an idea about how Eros and Thanatos are in a kind of zero-sum game situation, and Thanatos can only like move into space that is vacated by Eros, and so if we can if we can undermine capitalism's insistence on de-eroticizing the body in order to make it fit for work, you know, and reconfigure the conditions of work to create more space for Eros that will take space away from aggression, from the death drive, from Thanatos. Um, Marcuse says, until we reverse this current capitalist sexual repressive trend, um, annihilation will be our ultimate fate. And again, he's, you know, he's writing this, he publishes it in 55, he's thinking about Auschwitz, he's thinking then also about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, he really believes that existing capitalist regime by repressing sexuality is going to lead to the death of the species by Thanatos. Okay. Um, I want to really spend most of the rest of the time talking about Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is um, in some ways just as eclectic and tricky a book to read, but it's, it's denser and it has stayed with us and kind of influenced all of subsequent philosophy in a deeper way. Um, Dialectic of Enlightenment, one of the reasons it's difficult to read is that it was not actually written by a book. It's, it, it's basically Adorno and Horkheimer in California, 1943 and 1944, having just learned about Auschwitz in this kind of state of shock and talking it through. And it is a kind of transcript of their messy conversations and conversations which in some ways are filled with references that you know, no uh, two other minds would be likely to have in the same way they have them. So it's kind of all over the place. Um, it doesn't read smoothly, so don't feel badly if you're, you're kind of tripping over it. But I wanna kind of feed you now in the next few minutes what the critical points are because the, the central argument they make you know, has been one that we are still grappling with today that has never gone away. Um, it goes back to enlightenment. So we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning of the course. Um, it's going to go back and look at the traditional view that enlightenment was a good thing. That all of this exaltation of human reason, of the potential of people to understand the world and thereby sculpt the world, thereby perfect the world, that there had been an assumption in intellectual life that this was a good thing. Um, the whole Kantian tradition, and these guys really know Kant. You know, these people have like these people are raised on Kant. Um, this enlightenment is human liberation from self-imposed servitude. It is our exit from immaturity. Marxism is building on the, the claim that enlightenment is, is wonderful. That all that reason can lead to progress, can lead to virtue. Um, the whole Sedembrini, the organ grinder in Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain. Humanity has sprung from the depths of fear, darkness, and hatred. It was emerging, it was moving onward and upward towards a goal of fellow feeling of enlightenment, of goodness and joyousness. They're gonna take this whole tradition um, and say, okay, it had a dark side. It wasn't what we thought it was. Um, they're going to go back to um, Max Weber's idea of the Enlightenment reason as a kind of utilitarianism that put us in the iron cage of reason. 
Um, and they're going to ask the question, can you draw a line between Enlightenment and Auschwitz? Can you draw a line between Enlightenment and totalitarianism? And the book is not going to make a linear argument. They are going to draw a line, but it's not going to be a line line. It's going to be a Hegelian spiral. It's going to be a dialectical Hegelian spiral that is going to connect Enlightenment and totalitarianism. Um, it's the line they draw is a line of dialectical progressiveness um, in which everything is kind of containing within the cells of its, the, within itself the seeds of its own negation. Um, and I'll, I'll read you a couple of their quotes. Like, in the most general sense of progressive thought, the Enlightenment has always aimed at liberating men from fear and establishing their sovereignty, yet fully enlightened earth radiates disaster triumphant. Now the argument they're going to make has to do with this idea that in order that our reason as we use it to understand the world is effectively is that looking as the world as a subject looks at the object, an object to be molded. An object to be, the enlightenment made the world man's object. Man then became God with sovereignty over existence. Nature became an object of man's power. And this led to objectification as a mode of being. This objectification was going to kind of dialectically ricochet back at ourselves. Um, that's, that's what they're kind of fooling, fooling around with. That man is going to replace God, nature is going to become an object of man's power. Domination is going to become a mode of being. Myth turns into enlightenment. This is the, the ensalborong, the um, disenchantment. Myth turns into enlightenment and nature into mere objectivity, they write. Men pay for the increase of their power with alienation from that over which they exercise their power. You see, alienation is coming back here too. Enlightenment behaves towards things as a dictator towards men. He knows them only insofar as he can manipulate them. This enlightenment project of looking on the world as an object have resulted in domination as a mode of behavior. We want to understand the world in order that we can manipulate it and use it. Um, enlightenment has lost any sense of its own self-consciousness. In effect, we have become alienated from that nature as we see it as an object that we can dominate. We see it as an object of, that we can dominate, and then anything that does not conform to calculation, to computation, to utility is suspect. And so this shift, they say, is then natural from nature as an object to individuals as an object, and the ultimate result is going to be man's domination over man. Men's domination over an objectification of nature is going to dialectically lead to man's domination over an objectification of man, which will lead to man's sacrifice of himself to himself, and the product is going to be the herd. The, the, the herd, the crowd that follows the fascist dictator. Precisely man's domination over himself will engender the destruction of man as subject. The enlightenment designed to emancipate the individual is in effect going to lead us to fascist conformity. And in the end, they say, the transcendental subject of cognition is apparently abandoned as the last reminiscence of subjectivity and replaced by the much smoother work of automated control mechanisms. The unity of the manipulated collective consists in the negation of each individual. There's going to be a sacrifice of the self to the self. And then what I think is the key sentence to the whole book, which I, I, I like to use, the strain of holding the eye together adheres to the eye in all stages. And the temptation to lose it has always been there together with the blind determination to maintain it. This is on your handout, follow it. The sense that the desire to escape from the self has always been there together with the desire to fulfill the self. The temptation, the temptation to flee from subjectivity. 
And so the totalitarian quality inherent in enlightenment rests on the dialectic inherent in the individual's surrendering subjectivity as part of the pursuit of subjectivity. The self is going to be sacrificed to the self. The result of man's sacrifice of the self is ultimately a false society in which everyone is superfluous and everyone is deceived. Ultimately, enlightenment is going to be self-negating. Um, enlightenment is totalitarian. Um, okay, let me, let me we, we will... We will be coming back to this throughout the rest of the course, this kind of dialectical progression of the sacrifice of the self to the self. So really think through those quotes on your handout. I know it's a very difficult text to get through. Um, Auschwitz came to mean for Adorno that which reveals all hidden meaning, um, which for Adorno was largely a concept of history as, as progress towards hell. It was that which disclosed the crucial question, which is, has modernity meant liberation, or has it meant terror? Now, Adorno then, after learning of Auschwitz, will famously write, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. This is one of the legendary claims in post-war philosophy, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. Um, he will change his mind. The person who will persuade him to change his mind is the Romanian German language poet Paul Salon, who is a survivor of the Holocaust, who loses his parents to the Holocaust, who, who is multilingual and has many languages at his disposal and decides to write in German even as a Jew after the war. Um, he does something with the German language that has never before since been done with the German language um, in the poetry he writes. And the famous poem here is called Todesfuge, Death Fugue. Um, I'll read you the refrain in German. Schwarze Milch der Frühe, wir trinken sie abends, wir trinken sie mittags und morgens, wir trinken sie nachts, wir trinken und trinken. Black milk of daybreak. We drink it at evening, we drink it at midday and morning, we drink it at night, we drink and we drink. Um, in 1970, in Paris, Paul Salon throws himself into the Seine, committing suicide. Um, not long before he does this, he goes to Freiburg and to Totenauberg, to the Black Forest, and pays a visit to Heidegger. And that story I will tell you in a subsequent lecture. So have a good rest of the day. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.